Hey, hi everybody. This is Brian Koppelman. This is David Levine. And this is Behind the Billions. Thanks for watching the show. Thanks for being here with us in obviously a time of deep uh, unrest in the world. And there are far more important things than this. And uh, we considered not doing it. But uh, if you watch the show and if you want a little bit of distraction before you, I hope, get back in there and try to bring the world uh, closer to a more just place, then we will be here to have the conversation with you. H how's it going, Dave? How are you? Well, you know, I'm okay. I'm happy to uh, talk about the lighter side of episode six, the Nordic model. Well, let's let's dive into it. This is an episode with a lot of stuff that we'd long wanted to put in, in the show. Uh, you know, stories, uh, we have a special guest, Steve Kunkin, Stephen Kunkin, the great Kunk's coming up, who's going to talk about playing Spiros throughout the five seasons of the show and can't wait to talk to him. Yeah, I, I remember having conversations in the writer's room for years about these free ports, these, these things, these sort of storage spaces at airports where expensive paintings are supposed to be in transit. And, you know, we hit the beginning of the story last year, and this is where like the B side, like the other shoe drops. And around that time when we were researching this notion of these private museums where they're open for like 15 minutes a month and, you know, nobody knows about them. They're basically a private museum in name only, but are a tax dodge in intent. Um, you know, fascinated us and the way that people, certain of these hedge fund people use, um, you know, use art as a store of value and then try to start playing some games with the replicas that are supposed to be the ones that are displayed. Yeah, but this is one of those. Not. This is one of those things about about billions where it's all going to seem. Uh, really, could someone do a museum like that? Really, is this thing like a free port? And then you know, always like this week when the chicken scandal happened, you and I got a thousand tweets from people saying, "Oh, billions!" Uh, told is this an episode of billions? And all this stuff is legit. Like that, we had you know found um, the reporting on that chicken thing and used it early. And and this Freeport stuff is definitely something that some writers uh, brought in to the show. So this episode was directed, and I want to talk about her, by Shaz Bennett, who's a wonderful uh, woman we've known a long time and did a great job directing. The episode was written story by Adam Perlman and Stephanie Micus and uh, teleplay by Adam Perlman and Eli Addy. Uh, terrific script. And... Um, we also, I think, have long been fascinated by the kind of person who'd want to be in Mensa. <laughs> yes, the uh, the fascination of uh, Ari Spiros. Yeah, well, it does, every time we talk about it, it reminds me of um, the great Joe Hardy. Oh yeah, one of, uh, one of my best friends and a dear friend of yours who died a year and a half ago. And um, this was a man who was um, a, a brilliant music producer, he had a, a sort of a hillbilly accent and he was a proudly self-declared hillbilly, but he had a genius level IQ and somehow he was a Mensa member. I, he, did he take the test? Did they drag him in? Like how no, did he the end IQ up? No, the IQ test. Uh, um, was it, it automatic If you get a certain score, yeah. you're, you can just put, but I think for Joe, and so this is interesting, for certain kinds of people, and it tells you why Spiros would want it, even though he can't actually do it. 
Like for Joe, because Joe was, was from the hills of Kentucky and was basically an autodidact. And man, he'd talk like this and he'd say, hey man, how you doing? And I'm a shit kicker. It was always a kick to him that people would talk down to him. And he knew that he was walking around with like a 160 IQ. And so once in a while, he would just like to be like, well, I don't think that fucker's in Mensa. But it was also just a funny thing. And yes, we always would talk to Joe about it. And and when he died, we did lose a great sort of science advisor. We, we yeah, still have- every time, whenever we had like a science question, we could call him and just without doing any research, he'd immediately be like, are you familiar with Buckminster Fuller? He's a, uh, you know, they have these things <laughs> called buckyballs. They're, they're, they're carbon molecules and they're known to transport yeah. artificial intelligence. You know, he would just go on yes. these runs that we would try to decipher. Well, well, it's funny. Our other big science advisors, our dear friend from college days, Noah Eckhouse. And a couple times over the years, I would just, for the fun of it, Dave, I don't know if you remember, we did this a couple of times a few years ago. We would just put a jump ball up there and put both of them on a text chain <laughs> yes. and let them argue out whatever the fine point of it was without trying to curse at each other and stuff. And it was uh, great. And and I'm really glad you brought up uh, you brought up the great Joe Hardy. He produced some incredible ZZ Top records and a, a bunch of other g- great records. If you if you look them up, you'll you'll find out. But he was a guy I, I talked to once a week for 20 years. Uh, well, he's the only person that I know that I know was in Mensa. I suppose I know other people that are, but I don't, I've never had the conversation with anybody else. They don't go um, around talking. But then there's yeah. Spiros. And, you know, I remember, um, you know, when we were exploring it and we wanted the character to be sporting this pin and then um, our team got a hold of one of the pins so we could see it. And it's super, it's tiny and it's very sedate. And we were like, well, that's almost invisible. And on camera, that's not going to show. And we were like, and that would never do for Spiros. He needs a big one. And we were like, have have props put together a big Mensa pin. And then, of course, somebody who would know would recognize that that would be a fake. And we just sort of spun the story from there. Yes. And, and uh, somehow we all got to hear Wags say Mountaback Mensa member, which is uh, a highlight of some sort. Mountaback, well, Mountaback. Mountaback, uh, yeah. Mountaback Mensa member. Uh, we don't and, usually traffic too hard in the alliteration, but it fit there, so. In that one spot, it didn't yeah. seem to fit. And then, you know, this idea of Wendy deepening a relationship with somebody and the fact that it would have, the effect that it would have on Axe was also something that we spent a lot of time in the room talking about how to, how to execute, right? Absolutely. I mean, it was part of the creation of, um, Nico Tanner that, that Frank Rillo plays so well, the idea that this guy comes along who doesn't really measure himself by any of the metrics that people in the show usually use and that Wendy's drawn to him would completely like flip a switch and acts like, if there was ever a situation, he could always like this. He could always tell himself, well, I'm richer than that guy. I'm more powerful than that guy. But in this case, that guy doesn't care and Wendy doesn't care. And it seems like something's going on that Axe has no input into. And it just bothers him. When Axe sees the, um, you know, when Axe sees the little portraiture, uh, it it flips a, a, a switch in him in, in, in some way. And I do want to shout out our friend, uh, Victor Rodriguez, a great artist, and who there's no doubt that there's a little bit of Victor in the idea, you know, Victor's totally different human, but we spent time at Victor's studio and we would see that not, and he's an abstract artist and we would, I mean, not abstract artist, he, he does, he does these 
incredible, hyper-realistic and surrealistic works. But then on his wall, because he's a master, he has all different styles. And I remember you and I noting that once, like, oh, of course, if we have an artist whose main thing is abstract, of, of course he'd still be able to really do portraiture. Yes. It, and Victor did it for us. Before you get close, maybe you're not sure. You think, well, maybe this person does squares in one color because, you know, the technicalities of drawing faces is too hard. But if you look at any of the masters of modern art and beyond, they've all gone through the phases of the classical drawing and painting, and they're brilliant at it. Of course. And, and we were once at Victor's and he was doing a study. Remember, Dave, he, he had showed us a study of some old artist where he had just done the study himself and it looked exactly like that artist. And yeah, Victor does these incredible hyper-realistic- And we said uh, something to him like, oh, so you could really do a forgery, couldn't you? And he was like, of course. Any yeah. good artist could do a copy. Speaking of that, even though we'll get to references later, I, I, I will say it gives me, and I, as always, it gives me great satisfaction that we have an, a little tiny art dealer art expert who can evaluate whether something's a fraud and we we named him Hemlock. Yeah, I don't have to say uh, more about that. I just will oh, say you, we you named him Hemlock. Oh, you don't want to talk about what the homage is? Okay. We can, okay. we can, we'll but it. I think for the, in this particular case, I think if people find it, it's better. Did we say his first name? I can't remember. No, sir. It's just Hemlock. They call him Hemlock. Okay. They that is a fun him, one. They call him Hemlock. Um, we should talk more about Shaz Bennett though. Please do it. Lead us off. We, what was it like 20 years ago? Yeah, man. We met Shaz. 1999, 2000. We went to LA to finish post on um, Knock Around Guys that we directed. And she became our assistant out there. And she was great at that job, but it was clear that she was brilliant. So wired in the film scene, an important influencer with Sundance, even all the way back then. And we, we left LA and... I wouldn't say, you know, we didn't keep in close touch, but we were always in some kind of touch. And we watched as she, we were able to, uh, I think, give her, give a recommendation on For her, her first to our, writing to our good job, friend, yeah. um, Gary Randall, yeah. who was producing a show called The Glades. And she came on maybe as his assistant or a uh, writing room assistant and started writing that show, doing a great job. And then a couple of years back, she became a director and directed a Queen Sugar and was a writer and director on the Bosch series. And it was a great thing coming full circle when we realized that she'd be interested in doing our show. And she came out, of course, was super thorough, shadowed a full episode to understand the tone and the way we went about it, even though she'd done shows. She really made the most of the interview, though, too, because she didn't take for granted that we knew her. She came in, in fact, she wanted to direct last season and we weren't able to fit it in. And she showed up this season when we were deciding on directors with the most complete look. She did so much work, the kind of work that could leave you as the, as the person doing it heartbroken if you didn't get the job. And I know she must've done that a few times where she didn't get the job because of the vagaries of the business. And, and, and there's something- So what you're describing is she did a whole book with um, still frames of the show, right? With, as examples of- using them as examples to show us how she understood the the film grammar of our show. And I think she might've used some stills from, from other movies and, and TV shows that were super effective, sort of creating similar moments that showed she had a perfect grasp of the way the camera's used in our show. Totally, Dave. She she hadn't directed a Bosch yet, by the way. She'd written Bosch's and she directed one episode of that one other show, that Ava DuVernay show. Um, and... Uh, 
and you and I looked at each other. We were like, she's ready to do this. And we, we, we loved the idea of giving a shot to uh, a woman we'd known who'd really paid her dues over, oh, you know, we met her, she was really, really young and now she's not an old person, but it, it was time for her to really get this shot. And boy, did she deliver. Every actor came up to us and told us how much fun it was to yeah. have her directing. That's always a great moment when we bring somebody new in and, and all the actors start coming to us saying, wow, this person's amazing. They're so special. I love this person. You really feel like, you know, we want to take care of our actors and that's how you feel like you have because they will yes. never come up and say that if the person's not in total command and makes them feel comfortable and brings out interesting things in their performance. Totally. And that's what you hope for when you're in our job hiring directors for episodes. 100% true. And and Shaz delivered. And, and we certainly completely plan on bringing Shaz back to direct one or two episodes uh, in the, uh, hopefully not too far in the offing season six someday. Right on, right on. You know, we didn't do any script to screen. Do you remember anything that we intended that that changed a lot. I don't. I don't ever remember. No, um, just some location stuff where, like, uh, originally the first scene with the um, SEC woman was going to take place at the SC, at, at the New York Stock Exchange. And I uh, yeah, oh yeah, 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 sure. We couldn't that quite was make become, that happen. That was going to be untenable, so we were able to do it in the the conference room where a David Lynch painting is on great display. I think we've talked about how his art is populating Axe Capital this season, but it's featured in a great way in that That's shot. a particularly great one and it works particularly well. Uh, and so I remember, so, so this episode is all about art in many ways. And I remember us carrying around this idea for a couple of years that like, what if there was a situation where, where Chuck could throw a glass of red wine on a masterpiece under the, the auspices that it was a fake and that acts would, would supposedly react as such, but we all knew that it was real. That was like one of those like precept ideas that we were trying to figure out how to service. It was almost like the way Soderbergh gave us a bunch of visual images before we wrote Oceans 13 and said, I don't know what this means, but I just had this image of a room flying away on a helicopter. Yeah. A hundred percent. And I, and, and, and the rap that uh, Chuck Sr. gives to Chuck is something where we really want, you know, we love unpeeling just how dark these characters are. And I think we had almost put that run um, in the show that, that he, he says about various mental infirmities. We almost put that in the show a bunch of different years, but we felt like we couldn't really do it until you really, we got to a point where you could accept Chuck Sr. was laid so low that you'd understand the desperation from which he yes. had to say it. Something seemed a little too bald about it when he was like sort of at the height of his powers, just rattling that kind of thing off. But when he's in this state of extremists, we can maybe forgive him a little for, well, for doing well, it. Well, and I think we got to, I just, we rarely, it's funny, it's so easy to take Paul for granted sometimes, but the work Paul does in that scene, I just want to single it out because his dad is saying this horrible, offensive, you know, indefensible stuff. And Chuck, who would love to tell his dad his dad's an asshole and all this shit, it's, it's clear on Chuck's face how he understands how scared his father is. 
And he understands that this is the only tool Chuck Sr. has in his toolbox that's left is attacking in the most base, brutal way possible. And it's almost like the most lovingly Chuck ever looks at him when he says, you know, turns around to, 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 to leave. And it's with this and great understanding. Sorry, yeah. Yeah, yeah, sorry it didn't work out, Dad. And, mm-hmm. and, and it's, um, it's a really nice moment. And also, I'll say, it's one of these, I want to, uh, Adam Perlman, who's worked on the show for a long time, and um, has really served this incredible function for us as our, you know, until through season five as the, our number two in command in the writer's room. In his first episode that he ever wrote, I think, second episode he ever wrote, he put this offhanded line in where David Strathairn's character says something about, he never showed, about Chuck Sr. says, Chuck, he says, he never showed me any pictures of the bastards. Now, that's not something you and I had, uh, most of this stuff, you know, you and I came up with a long time ago about these characters, but we had not considered that idea. And Adam put that in and it just grew on us and grew on us until we decided uh, together with, with Adam and everybody, oh yeah. Senior yeah why not? He had Senior some. definitely had a couple of kids outside of wedlock that he's hidden from Chuck. And yeah, he got says, to use uh, it to real effect. Straight there and says to uh, Paul, I remember uh, seeing the pictures of you in, in short pants or in, in knickerbockers or something like that. And Chuck says, I, I don't think that was me. I don't remember ever wearing those. And he goes, no, I think it was you. I mean, I don't think he'd go around showing pictures of the bastards. And the look on Chuck's face is like, wait a minute, is this just like an older guy like tossing something off the cuff or does he mean this? Is there a whole other world out there? I remember when we shot that too, Jack Foley is Stray Theron's character. And I remember thinking, huh, what are we, what are we going to decide about this? And that sometimes, you know, it's like you leave these little breadcrumbs that you pick up years later when you're making a long running show like this. Yes. And now he has the new baby. So it just seemed like it fit more. Maybe this guy was always a family man. And it's of a sort. Of a, a family sort. man. He loves children. He has a lot of them. Should we uh should we talk crew superstar? Yes, we really should, Dave. This is we can this is sort of a, a department super a superstar department, but we can talk about the individuals. Let's talk about the key first, though. The 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 person who runs the department, because this guy has been on the show from the you know from the early days. Yeah. And his name his name is David Schwartz also, and more commonly known as Dave Sound. And there's something that people may not know that much about, which is there's always a little bit of a a conflict between sound and camera when you're shooting something because camera wants to go first and be more important. And there's like this notion that any problems with sound can be fixed in post, but a sound person with pride of their job and expertise knows that there's no substitute for great production sound and they will fight for their turf, which means when the cameras and lights are set up in a certain way, it really limits where the booms can be placed and the methods of which the, in which the scene can be recorded. And these guys will scrap in order to do a good job and give you clean production sound. I mean, we've worked with a lot of excellent uh, live sound people, but I have to say, man, Dave is... And his department, Dave's just incredible. He really cares so much about getting it right and about nailing it for us and for the show and for the actors. And they're an unsung department. It's really a a, a job with little moment-to-moment rewards. And 
Dave and his whole department, Dave, and I know you're going to single out some other people in the department. They just crush it. And I, uh, we felt like we should, we should just call that people's attention to that. When you're watching something, there are people whose whole job is to make sure you get to hear what it sounds like. Uh, yeah. And in sound utility, Christy, Christy Ilias, the boom op, Allison Howe, and the alternating episode boom op, Graham Gardner. These guys do such a great job, all of them. You know, one of the things they have to do is place these body mic mics on the cast. And sometimes the actresses are wearing, um, dresses that they have, you know, these mics have to be placed in very strategic places and the actors have to feel trusting and comfortable with them. And they always make it that way. And being a boom op is you have to stand there for hours with your hands above your head, holding the mic out of the frame line, but close enough. You have to articulate the mic so that it goes towards the person who's speaking when they're speaking. So you have to pay attention to the lines. It's physically challenging. It's, it's like, um, intellectually challenging because you have to pay attention for like 12 straight hours. Basically you have to be unobtrusive yet get it right. And this department just crushes it the whole way. And the result of that is these actors don't have to go in and loop, which means re-record the scene in a booth, um, after the fact, which is a really draining experience. And it, the performance is never quite as good when they're standing in a recording booth as they are when they're acting. And it's a real gift to all of us. It, it really is. We also have great uh, post-sound people, post-production sound people who add just so much to the show. And we've we've shouted them out before, but it is true that that's another part of this, the, the, the sort of the post-production sound mixing and and re-recording. So that 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 whole department needs special. I'm I'm actually going to IMDb because Greg's name is not easy to pronounce and I want to get it exactly I want to get it exactly right. So Dave vamp for a second while I look up how to pronounce Greg's last name. Well, while you're doing that, I mean, I'm looking ahead here to a chock-full um episode references category. A lot of guest cast we got to talk about. Yeah, well, we got to get into the guest cast for sure. But and and you can start on that, and I'll I'll do it. I just have to. I I feel I must get the sound people's names. So when when uh, I was when I was looking through the episode, I was kind of shocked at how many references there are in this, and how disparate they are, and everything. Yes, you know, there's one that's talking about uh, how the paintings are supposed to travel around to beat the tax man, kind of like the stones in 72. <laughs> Love that reference. I, I think Eli might've written that or Eli and Adam wrote it. You know, um, it's a reference to when they, when they were bouncing around outside of England, so they didn't have to pay income taxes. They recorded exile on main street in France so that they were sort of men without a country. So they couldn't get taxed at an incredibly high rate. There's like a Steve Wynn reference talking about the Picasso elbow through the nose there's a Bob Ross reference in League with all the great well, artists. So I used to wear a Bob Ross shirt before Bob Ross shirts were cool. Um, Dave, <laughs> Eric. You got Eric, those names? The great, well, Eric Hirsch, who's uh, just an amazing re-recording, makes her dialogue editor and an incredible dude with a questionable taste in one band that he loves. And uh, Greg Switlowski who the two of them, there have been other people involved, Lon Bender, who's a great old collaborator of ours. Um, 
but but Eric and Greg have really held this thing down for the whole time and in post. And as you said, Dave gives them incredible stuff to uh, work with. But keep rolling through these references. I'm excited. All right. So we have a wrestling reference in there, which is always great. And I always like them when it's when it comes from somebody you don't expect. In this case, it's Wendy mentioning Big John Stud. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that, that was really funny way that I remember how that came to be. There were questions asked about who would, I mean, I am the person that people will ask these questions to. And someone asked me about a specific move and uh, we kept going back and forth until we- uh, It was a big John Studd move? Yeah, yes. He was then, He was the guy, he was like sort of the guy big enough to seem like a reasonable heel to Andre, right? Exactly right, exactly yeah. right. Yes, that's a that's tough correct. billet for that guy. Yeah, dude. Yes. That's well, terrible. Andre, Andre because, would sometimes because work he stiff. was like he was like three he was like three forty maybe, but he oh, was he's still a, giving up two hundred pounds. Dude, he's a massive, massive, massive guy. But he Big looked John like a Stein. child. He looked like a middleweight next to Andre. But we're still talking him to talking about him to this day. So his legacy yes. secure. We have a Manfred Man blinded by the light, which is a backdoor Bruce reference in there. Yes, very exciting to get very that in fun. there. There's a Bruce Cutler, which I, I happen to love that one. Yeah, it's a very a, nice a, little- a, a, a legendary New York mob defense attorney who got a little too close. Um, and shout out to Glenn Fleschler, who plays Orrin Bach, who just crushed the delivery of that line. Hilarious. An out of left field Sonny Crockett reference that made us so happy. We laughed our asses off when we saw that, yep. There's a Bobby Fisher bar Spassky. There's the improbable trifecta of the Mensa people, Asimov, Joyce Carol Oates, <laughs> and Gina Davis. Yes, the, Gina, the, who's who also you'll know a, is a fine actor and archer. Uh, one of the great archers, which yeah. is uh, a shocker. There's Elliot Ness and Al Capone references in different places. There's, there's, I think there's a Bud Fox reference. There's an Ed Exley. Oh yeah, well that's great. Anytime you and I can get a uh, a reference in there to LA Confidential. Shout out to the late great Curtis Hansen, that director. We yeah. had a, we had the privilege of watching LA Confidential before it came out uh, on a screening. It was only the two of us there. The music wasn't even finished yet. I don't remember the auspices under which we got to watch it. We were trying to convince Curtis to direct Rounders maybe early on, or it was just after somehow that convert we got so we got we got invited to that. That screening room, maybe like it was like the old MGM screening room or something. Now, like I remember that. we sat there and, and we were uh, like, "Holy shit, what, what a movie! What the fuck is this?" <laughs> yeah. right, because no one really knew who Russell and Guy Pierce were, and uh, you had maybe read some Elroy, but I hadn't read the book at that time, and it just blew—I don't know—just blew our fucking minds. So yeah, incredibly, great to reference it. Incredibly made movie, and and with that straight there in performance. Uh, yes, it's one of the things Padgett. that made us yeah. want to Pierce Paget want to yeah. work with him. All right, so so uh, what else do we want to talk about? Or should we talk about guest cast before we bring Conks on? Yeah, the la the last reference was uh, the Oakland Raiders. We went very we, important. Yeah, the silver well, which, and black, which dovetails into anytime we get to have Berbiglia on the show, it's a good day. It's and, a great thing, and he it's a sold the shit out of that. So did Asia. He did so. There's so many. I just rattle them off. Danny Strong comes back. Daniel Cosgrove comes back in a meaningful way, a guy who was in the pilot and somehow has been in every season, um, you know, doing some incredible story delivery for us. Uh, yeah, it's true. Daniel Cosgrove's amazing. And uh, 
Danny Strong, I realized we talked about Hard Bob a lot in that episode they were on before, and we didn't really talk about Danny Strong. And look, here's the thing about Danny, who plays Todd Krakow, that you may not know if you're watching the show. Danny's one of the most successful screenwriters in all of Hollywood. He created the show Empire, along with Lee Daniels, uh, and um, wrote a couple of the Hunger Games movies and is a director and really comes and does our show with us because it's... uh, he enjoys coming and acting and being a part of this whole thing. And every time he comes to set, it's great because we're able to have little kind of mini uh, writers meetings with, with Danny and just talk <laughs> about the world of show business uh, in a way that his understanding of it is so great. Uh, and then uh, another guest is Ed Schoenfeld, which is also uh, a reference with the Red Farm. He's the owner of Red Farm. He delivers some dumplings to the great Roma Mafia. Yes, who kills it. And then uh, we should mention, even though he's a part of the show a lot, uh, Sean Ailes is played by Jack Gilpin. And Jack is one of the only people we just wrote apart for without ever having met him. Uh, this was back in the pilot. Second in episode. Fact, Second in fact, episode. in the episode, in the character description, it says Sean Ailes, you know, something, whatever, a, you know, 55 wearing tweed or something. And then in parentheses, Jack Gilpin. Yeah, perhaps Jack Gilpin. That's what it <laughs> yes. said. Perhaps Jack Gilpin, which was- That, per, a, that perhaps was, if he was willing to come, that's who it'll be. I, in our whole career, that's the only time those were, something like that was ever in a script. But Well, it we just should do it more right. because he's in the show and it's amazing. Yes, we called that out somehow. Terry Kinney as Hall doing some delightful work in this episode, so fun. Um, a Visit Back by Kevin Bresnahan and Michael Stoyanov playing Johnny and Terry Burke. You know what I want to talk about just for one sec, Dave? I want you to talk about how the how, uh, finding the, when we know we're going to have a big scene like the one we have between Chuck and Axe, it's such a big deal. Like so many resources are focused on figuring that out. And like the script, the screen thing, us figuring out where we could shoot them outside and what that apartment could be like and how to do that, that takes like, to pull something like that off, just our, it really is every single department had worked so hard to make that happen. And then Shaz being a younger director had to figure out how to craft that scene. And I, for me, when I watched it again today, uh, I was like, well, you know, she did what a great job she did. And everybody did to pull that together. Yeah. That sequence is really, really well done. Very fun. And then, so I've been building up to, to, um, a piece of guest cast here that this is a guy we've wanted to work with for a long, long time. And you know what? Even though you said we we never did the thing with Jack Gilpin, we did something kind of similar. The character that Dominic Lombardozzi plays is named Mons now. But in the original conception of the character, we were calling him Dom because we were just thinking of Dominic Lombardozzi. I'm so and glad you mentioned it. Then when we got him, we were like, okay, he doesn't have to play his own name. He's playing a different character. It's not him. So he's Mons and he is Anthony Mangieri's cousin. And um, not in real starts, life, but on the no, show. On the show. And he starts interacting with Axe in this episode. And uh, of course, Anthony Mangieri is the pizza genius. And uh, so to have the two of them together is a fantastic, fantastic Dominic. Man, did Dominic bring a lot to that. Yeah, you're right. Well, we called Dominic and we said, look, you, you, we're just asking you to come to this little thing. We, we have bigger plans down the road. We hope it'll happen. But 
even though this isn't the kind of, you know, normally you get bigger stuff to do, will you come do this? And he immediately was just like, oh, I'd love it. I'm ready. I'm in. Let's go. Let's rock and roll. It was great. Yeah. And he showed up and, you know, he had thought about the character, even though it's this one hit in this, in this episode, you know, the character's completely grounded. He thought about the character 360. We had some conversations about what, what kind of a character it was. And, you know, I just look forward to doing a lot more with and, Dominic. And with that, I think we should talk about the fact that, look, Stephen Conkert is going to come on here is just what a treat that this guy is, has been in so many episodes of our show and will continue to be as long as we make the show, we hope. Uh, he's uh, just a phenomenal, phenomenal person and incredible actor, of course, plays uh, Ari Spiros and we should get him in here. David, this is the most exciting part of this particular podcast hour. Indeed it is, because we get a, a delightful guest joining us. Yeah, hey, in, in all seriousness, our guest is someone I've known <laughs> since I was a kid, and uh, he just crushes it, destroys it on our show, as uh, Ari Spiros, the great Stevie Conks, Steve Conkin. Oh my gosh, I'm so, I am so thankful to be here, social, social not distancing over Zoom with y'all. It's good to see you guys, I've missed you guys. Yeah, Conks, uh, let me thank you publicly. I had I had major uh, dental issues at the beginning of the pandemic, and you were my counselor, and uh, you guided me through the process because you come from a, a family of dentists, and you haven't lost that special touch with knowing how to how to manage a uh, difficult tooth problem. Did it, did it, are you still holding strong on that same uh, on that yeah. same? It's all working out. It's all working out, man. We gamed that so hard. It was like a billions episode. We figured that exactly how we were going to play that over time. I mean, you did basically, and it was really uh, you and your you and your dad, a, a retired dentist. Uh, so Steve Conkin, who came into the show, I always want wonder this about someone when they get. I've never asked this question. So you were a guest star on the pilot of Billions. In fact, you came in and auditioned for a part. Then we offered you another part took it. What are the expectations an actor has when he comes in to do, it was a meaty guest role. It started off the episode, but how does an actor think about, you know, a bunch of us have been working, you know, think about coming into something like that. You're not really part of the whole show in a guaranteed way. How does an actor think about that experience? I mean, I think you can only ever really eat what's on your plate and what, and what, you have. I mean, if you start thinking too far ahead, you start, you know, you start chewing the wallpaper and that's, and that's dangerous. I mean, I, that's, it's an interesting question because there are certain people I think who are like, I'm going to leave my mark on this now. And invariably you can, that just reads on people, you know, and the best people who have ever come through the show are the people who you're like, just seamlessly just will walk through a scene and be like, I don't know who that guy is, but I want to follow him down the hallway because he's doing nothing. And it's the most fascinating thing I've ever seen. Um, and if you come in thinking you're going to lay your mark and play Hamlet with your four lines, you're just, you're going to end up with egg all over your face. But are you, are you hoping that you'll be like, do you read something like that and think like, Oh, well, this could turn into something. Or are you just thinking I'm going to go, what, what's your mindset on the, on the way to set the, the first day? How are you preparing the character and how are you thinking about, what could be in the, were you there for two days or one day? Two days, right? Uh, I was there for two days because there was a scene in the bathroom also, yeah, which was right. super fun. Um, 
You know, you're hoping, and I was really hoping, and this is not, I mean, I'm not just blowing smoke, but I had seen your guys' stuff and I loved the rhythms of the way you guys wrote. And I was hoping, obviously, not just because I knew you and we were friends and I, but I really admired what you guys did. And I was hoping that it would be something more. And I could tell from the script, I was like, all right, well, they, these two guys share a history and they, and he's somehow woven into the, into some kind of plot point into this so maybe there's more um but really i just kind of i've been burned enough times thinking there was going to be something at the end of you know there was a show i did called now and again it's a, it's a um it's a lore in my family where i dropped a theater job because i played this agent on this show and they were like you're going to be recurring and oh they told writer. you that ahead of they told you that ahead of time yeah, yeah. so i I was so young and green that I told my family who was running the summer stock theater company, I was like, I got to drop out of the show because I'm a regular on the show. And they were like, <laughs> they're like, and it turned out I was like appeared twice on the show. And it was like, that was recurring, but I didn't know at that point what the difference between recurring and regular was. I'm like, yeah, I'm recurring. It's not a big deal, but I'm gonna have to drop out of the show. Uh, <laughs> so right, because recurring, recurring means you, you don't have a contract that, that makes you exclusive to the show and the show's only guaranteeing if they say that you will recur, that only means you'll come back one other time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, and, you know. And then just so people know the way that it worked on our show, um, you know, we didn't have long range plans mapped out for Spiros, but we we wanted him back because we we thought that he could be an important character. So over the first couple of seasons, we had you back a few times and we just liked it so much that we were like, how do we weave this guy into the main of the show? And around that time, we'd found out about like the, the, the public sector people making the jump, you know, and getting hired, like the regulators getting hired by the hedge funds. And we were like, well, that's perfect. When he walks out working at Axe Capital, it's gonna be delightful. That's amazing. It's also a little bit, hearing that, it's a little bit like when your parents are like, and if I hadn't been at the restaurant, in that moment, you wouldn't have been born. I'm a little bit like, oh, really? Was that? I thought it was, you guys never planned to keep it around. For that no, we knew we would shit. keep Spiros. No, obviously, you were in both Long of the time. first two seasons, yeah. right? And I think it's also important. I want to say because you said even though we weren't friends, I mean, the truth is, you and I were friendly as kids. We always had a lot of affection for each other. Your brother and my sister were good friends, but it's not like we had been friends up until no. you came in oh. to audition. I remember when you came in. I was super happy that it was you. And I, I remember because we both, the same drama teacher taught both of us, we had a, a connection, but we didn't really become real friends again until we started working together, which was great for us. Cause it was, we did all fall into an immediate rhythm again, which was yeah. a, a, a wonderful thing. And now you're a dear friend, but it, it, it was fascinating the way that that all um, came together. But related to this, because Spiros, when we did bring him in in the third season in that meaningful way, it's not that the character changed exactly, but we did decide to, you know, Spiros is rather serious in the first season. Uh, and in fact, his backstory is troubling. Uh, there's the great Cortado moment, which I think is the first moment that Dave and I, David, episode seven of the first season we, we did start to feel like, okay, we have a mind meld with this guy in terms of where the character can go because of the Cortado mm -hmm. moment, which um, Spiros is a coffee enthusiast. And Steve, talk about your feelings about coffee for a second. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little obsessed with it, with the, uh, with the Java. Um, no, I love it. I've, I, you know, I've always been obsessed with, and maybe it's my version of, um, 
of the affect of becoming a cobbler or some kind of thing where, you know, like the great actors all have some, but I, I always used to take the batteries out of remote controls. I always like wanted to figure out and go as deep dive on something on one particular thing because the world is so vast um, that I felt like if I could own one thing, I might understand a lot of other things by owning something in a, in a, in a very vertical way. I could understand possibly more of the horizontal axis. And it just became something I was fascinated in. Coffee sort of goes all over the planet. That that supply chain touches so many different parts of our lives. And uh, I'm so delighted that I get like this other passion that I have sort of filters, pun intended, into uh, oh. into the course of our daily work. I mean, when I read that Cortado line, you wrote me <laughs> and we, we like that that absolutely preceded you ever knowing that I was into coffee. I don't know yeah, well, how it was, you guys- it was, an, it was an amazing synergy. The line was written and like within 15 minutes, you happen to post on social media, like a haiku about a barista making a cortado. And Brian was like, I'm sending him this couplet right now. So he knows that it had to be coincidence. That you know, the order was the yeah. reverse, that we wrote the <laughs> yeah. line first. Completely. I mean, yeah. I, my eyes bugged out of my head when and I then, saw yeah, that. So the audience knows, um, you know how they say like the actor did all his own stunts? In our show, all the coffee drinks are pulled um, <laughs> directly by Mr. Konkin. It's a great honor. There's no, there's no stand-in expert barista. He is the barista. He even does the little foam designs. Oh yeah, what do you call those pat? What do you call the patterns? What are they called? Well, there's there's rosettes and hearts, but there's latte art is really what you you know. There's different kinds, but yes, latte. excuse me for my crude reference to such. <laughs> yes, it's latte art, Dave. Come well, on, yeah. man, it's, it's fucking art, latte actually. art. It's, no, it's a it's a great thing. And and but when we then decided, okay, we're gonna bring you know, Spiros in the second season had some fun moments, but then we decided, all right, we're gonna do this. And David and I were making a real commitment that, all right, we're really going to use this character now. We're going to make him part of the fabric of the show. And uh, did you do any recalibrating then? Because, I mean, we told you, and and I remember we, we called you or had you come up to the office and mentioned it to you. Did And and, and we knew we were going to build a real entrance in for the character with that incredible song, uh, the Mink DeVille song. And, so and, awesome. It was such a great gift. Uh, yeah, that yeah was like I, a, I had, Brian, I had the exact same question. It's just like, how, how as an actor did you approach playing someone like Spiros? Like once he started to re be revealed for all the things he was, like how did you, what's the method by which you approach that? It's such a great question. I mean, you know, it's almost like you got to live your backstory for a little while and then you have to kind of join the pieces together. I mean, I think some people, people don't really want people to change in real life. I mean, I, you know, that's one of the big factors. Like if you go back to high school, people, you know, you see those people and they don't really want you to be different. They don't want you to have changed over time. And, you know, it's interesting how some people are like, yeah, but you were this in episode one and two. So there's no possible way that guy could. And I absolutely saw the beads on the string of a guy who wanted power. He wanted affect. All he wanted from Chuck was to be the top dog you know, in the thing, speak first at the presser, you know, right. and suddenly, you know, he traded all of that in for this, where suddenly he got to wear the clothes that he wanted and could say he hiked Kilimanjaro. And it seemed to me like, okay, so his, his inner monologue just became completely external. And, and it was like this great moment to sort of be like, okay, he can live publicly in a way. And he's also, he, he's in, embarrassingly short-term memory free you know there's a guy who like 
I wish I would had a little more of Spiros in me. He's not cowed. He can say it, and two seconds later, he thinks the room is still going to turn around and love it, and they just he just does not learn. Well, so, yeah. So that's that's my follow up question. Do you have to like a character you play, or do you just need some way into knowing what makes him tick? Um, uh, that's another good question. I mean, I think you have to. I I think there's the actors who are like, I'm going to put, I'm going to put a facade on, and I'm going to work completely outside in. And then there's some actors who like turn off parts of themselves that don't serve the character and work inside out. I think I'm probably more of an inside out type person. So there are things in me that I absolutely respond to. You know, I think there there's part of Spiros in everybody as much as people don't want to believe that's true. I think that's why he really irks some people because he's not cowed. He doesn't think better of of not asking the question or or putting himself up. Um, no, he really so- thinks when they didn't bring him to the meeting. Uh, when he's got the top hat on in the last episode, episode five. Yeah. Uh, he really believes they're making a mistake, not bringing him along. He put on his fucking banker's top hat and they yeah, didn't that was bring him. It was a huge success that was awaiting them all. And it just well, is yeah. their mistake. I mean, so what, what is the source of Spiros's <laughs> dignity? Um, what is the source of Spiros's dignity? I think the source of Spiros's dignity is knowing that, um, that he he can't be hurt in some way, possibly. <laughs> Although, because everything hurts, maybe because everything yeah, but yeah, hurts. I was gonna say. Yet there's the, all this vulnerability there in little moments. It, it, it hurts, and he rolls through it. But <laughs> but uh, Cugs, what I think also is there in the connective tissue, and tell me if this resonates for you at all. Is when Spiros he accomplished his mission. He was a government guy, and as a yeah. government guy, he had to be buttoned down and rein a bunch of that shit in. And then the private sector recognized him. And so once he was recognized, he just missed, he had a fundamental maybe misunderstanding of what it was that they recognized was great. Completely, completely. I think that's great. That's dead on. And I mean, also, if you think about what a compliance's job is at Axe Cap, it is such a polluted you know, use of who that person would be. You know, they don't want him to, they want him to keep them clean. They don't want him to basically, you know, be an ethics officer. Um, and so it's, you know, I think he's, he gets to just, he gets to luxuriate in, in really not having to do very much except to hang his shingle out that he's, you know, do is the guy you'd come to, to have the check place done. What do you get out of this ensemble? I, I've loved the way people describe it just in general, but can you talk a little bit about, being part of this ensemble for this number of years. And what is it that happens to, I don't know how many times you've had this experience. As you know, for Dave and me, this is the first really long time thing. And I know from our perspective what it is, but from, I mean, you're an actor's actor. You know, you're a Broadway, a, a real successful Broadway actor. Um, you All that, all this this experience doing this Juilliard train, but like, what is this experience of this five years so far of being in this ensemble, working with this group of people? What does it give you? Well, I mean, it's in one aspect, it, just, it gives you great confidence no matter where you go, because, you know, you're working every time we have a table read and somebody comes in. It's 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 like being on one of these great basketball teams where they're like, who did they get in the trade season? Oh, my God, we got that. And you can still tell how good your team is by who they're putting in the different positions on the team. And you just realize when you. Every person who filters through Mark Blum, a perfect example, is a guy, you know, who we lost this year, but who I've done a million readings with. 
and who is such a consummate professional, somebody whose work is seamless, an actor's actor. He comes in to do, you know, this great arc on this show, and you just are thrilled by it, by Paul Giamatti and Damien and Corey, who I've known and I've done movies with. I mean, it's just such a, it's, a, it's an ensemble that you're like, you have to come in, you have to be firing on all cylinders. There's not a lot of, and I think you know this, there's not a lot of that grumble up to getting it machine moving. You know, if you could probably have as many successful first takes on our show as there were fifth takes or tenth takes. Um, because people are just ready to go. People want, and because there are a lot of mouths to feed, and I marvel at how you guys keep those mouths fed. You know, when you get the ball, when you when somebody hands you the plate, you eat and you eat fast and you do it. And and it's it's exciting. And I think that manifests in, in the movies that I've done and, you know, wherever I go somewhere else, there's this great confidence to know that you can play pickup ball with every and anybody. And and you just got to get out there and you you, have, you can't warm up into it. You just do it. And, and what do you think the thing is that happens with you and Kelly? I mean, how did this, I know from a writer's perspective, but did, did it occur to you? I, I always wonder this about actors. Did it occur to you at a certain point? Oh, me and him. This is, there's something happening here. Or it, uh, that's dollar yeah, bill. I'm, yes, dollar bill. <laughs> Kelly, a coin. You know, I think I'm trying to remember when the first, like, just, you know, when the taste of the, the dog shit got in both of our mouths about it. But it <laughs> right. was, it was, it was in season three, probably. You know, I love Kelly. I love how there's a guy who also doesn't care what people think of him, but in a completely different Oh, Dollar way. Bill. Yes, right. Yeah, Dollar Bill. So there's no way that those two people are not going to be on a collision course for each other. A guy who wears a right. fleece vest to, you know, to the fanciest restaurants in the world. <laughs> and, you know, and then a guy who will wear a, a top hat to, you know, uh, a Boy Scout meeting. Well, you, okay, they, so- now you've said the word cylinder and you said collision course. So that that put a question into my head. Explain to us how Spiros arrived at the Porsche Boxster and how that made him feel. <laughs> um, okay, so this is a great moment because this will tell you a lot about me and where I come from. I thought the Porsche Boxster was the greatest car that ever <laughs> in, <laughs> that real life. Was. in real life. In real life. That's and Long Island. Is that Long Island yeah, talking? Yeah. Okay. I thought I we're like, all from Long Island. I mean, yeah. Yeah. And then when it suddenly was told to me and I walked around that car like, oh my God, I'm going to get to sit in this thing and drive it around. Um, and then when somebody's like, well, you get that's the worst Porsche. Series, <laughs> right. I had no, no clue, which made it a perfectly, you know, well, seamless so that's it's amazing. A, by the way, yeah. I drove one of those Porsche Boxsters once. Yeah. You know, I rented one once in LA and it's like the most fun thing to drive <laughs> in the world. It's I'm so sure. much fun. But so what, bad. what was your experience of a 911 growing up? Like, what was that in your head? If the Boxster was like the apotheosis of cars. Uh, oh. it, what, a 911 was like, it was a poster. I never right. really even thought that they were much more than a poster with See, a model on top of you it. You recognized it was better, but it was actually just so unattainable that it didn't matter. It was like a spaceship for all intents and purposes. Yeah, the Boxster was something that was like, I saw Boxsters drive into the Wheatley Shopping Center. You didn't, it, a 911 just whipped whipped by uh, and you just were like, I don't even, I, I don't know who that person would could possibly be. 
David, I've never told this before, but I'm going to tell it because, and you know it, I'll tell it super quickly. But Conks, did we tell you the origin of that jacket that you wore in that episode? <laughs> no, no. Please do, because it was a, another brilliant gift. When I was a child of 15, 14, I, like you, had this fascination with, I was like, oh, can you imagine growing up and being able to get a Porsche? And I would talk about it a lot. I really wanted one. And I somehow for my birthday convinced my parents to get me a jacket, a Porsche jacket, because that's the kind of Long Island douchebag I was <laughs> at 15. And it was silver, though, which we tried to get and we couldn't get one for you. But it was a silver Porsche jacket. And do you remember at our high school, there was an outdoor education trip where you would have to go away for a few days. Did you have it? Was it? So, yeah, was somewhere. You had to go and you had to go yeah, like, yeah. you had to ride a... a, a you rafted down rivers. Yeah, you rafted right? down a, a river and stuff, or we did anyway. Well, I made the mistake not realizing it was the winter and cold, but I loved the jacket so much that that's the jacket I brought for our outdoor ed trip. And the guy who ran, and it was silver, and the guy who ran the thing, his name was Garrison. And he would constantly look at me and he called me right away. He goes, oh, we got a spaceman among the crew here. Look at the spaceman. And uh, I was like, oh, no, sir, it's a, actually this is a car. And he goes, I know what it is, spaceman. And uh, and then he 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 had, would tell the story of that every time he's ever um, he's ever gone down the rapids, he'd never uh, he never uh, turned. What do you call it when you capsize the canoe? He never capped. Yeah, never capsized, capsized, capsized. He never capsized. And he goes, all right, I'm going to take spaceman with me down the thing. <laughs> and he had me in the back of it. And of course, I fucked up. And we turned over capsized. Oh, no. And so I'm floating down the thing. And of course, the jacket balloons out kind of <laughs> above me. And it was just like the biggest, out of the single most embarrassing moment of my childhood, pretty much. And it's, and, and, and we it's, had to have Spiros wear that's the jacket. amazing. It's basically like you and Jack Palance and City Slickers, where he's like, I crap bigger than you in that jacket, Spaceman. Yeah, no, Spaceman, Mr. Spaceman. Space so that's Man. what, that is why we gave Spiros that. In 305, oh, that's that episode, the fifth episode of the um, third season. So do you, when how do people interact with you as, a, as, we, as we get you out of here on this one, I guess? Um, how do you, I see people talk to you all the time online and is it fun being the defender of the Spiros online and stuff? I mean, and engaging with people, do you like it? I love it. I mean, you know, it's, it's very fun to a parse, whether they, whether he just is distasteful and they makes them vomit in their own mouth because it's wholly successful. Um, and invariably they're like, as soon as you go like, oh, thank you. Thank you for, they're, they're like, I love the character in you. It just makes me cringe. Well, it's an honor to have you play the character and um, have you in our lives on the show. And uh, we really appreciate how much heart and soul you bring to the character of Spiros. Uh, you got, it's, it's honestly, it's like a, it's over five seasons. It's become like a, a family and it's just, I can't, it's, it's really odd to sort of have, take this pause and realize, you know, A, what we have and then what we miss and can't, I, I cannot wait to sort of get back. It's just right or from the moment you arrive on that set to the makeup truck and every, every single person involved, it's, it is a real joy to be there, honestly. Um, and just before we actually get you out of here, I do want to, because of the times we're living in, I do want to make note of the fact that you have a daughter who uh, would be characterized as black in America. And I just want to ask how you're doing and, and, and what you're just, you know, there's no way to have this conversation in, in America right now without 
touching on it. And I, I wouldn't want to. And as a, a dear friend, I do want to know how, how you're doing and, and how she's doing and how everybody's processing this. You know, it's such a, it's such an, it's an amazing time to have come out of what you thought was probably the kind of the worst time in your life in terms of COVID and to step into an even bigger, you know, a, a bigger moment, actually. Um, and so, you know, it's our, our job is really hard because I think, you know, I was, I was about to do a play and we postponed the play because the, the play was about this time. And I think we all felt like this is our moment to not actually talk, but to listen. Um, and also it doesn't, I, I I'm finding no matter what my intent is on things, the intent doesn't even actually matter in this moment and because you could you, it's the way it, the trajectory of what your intent is could have, can be blown by the wind and affect somebody in a different way. So all in this moment, it's about, for me, it's about paying attention and listening as, as much as I can to all the people who I respect uh, and try to learn as much as I can. And there will be a moment later on where uh, I'll take that all in. And with my daughter, it's really hard because you want your kid to have felt safety. You want them to feel, especially coming out of this absolutely bizarre antisocial moment that we all just lived through where she's doing school on a computer all day long. And then to walk into this next moment um, as an as a interracial family is extremely it's extremely complicated. And we haven't, you know, we want her to feel safe. We also want her to know what's going on. Um, and we also want the world, I want the world to be better for her. So um, anything I can do for that, I will do. And, um, you know, it's a lot of things to put in the same hopper, but uh, it, there's nothing else that's more important, honestly. Well, please give her uh, and your wife a hug for us. And um, dude, we love you. And we'll talk to you soon. Love me too. Bye. Take care, buddy. Yeah.